Today, we're going to be looking at two different passages of Scripture. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 for a few minutes, and then we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 for the rest of our time. Uh, I was reading this week about all the resources that it took for the Allies to win World War II. And I was astounded at how much sacrifice, how much organization, how much struggle, how much effort went into actually gaining the upper hand and winning the Second World War. I'm going to share some of that, those stats with you. Uh, if you add up all of the, the vehicles that the Allies used in World War II, tanks and self-propelled artillery, uh, and vehicles like jeeps and, and trucks that would haul the, uh, carry the wounded from the battlefield, 4,300,000 vehicles alone in the Second World War. Think about artillery and mortars and guns, 6.8 million pieces of, of hardware used in that way. Aircraft, 637,000 different types of planes, 54,900 ships. I mean, these numbers are astounding. Those are military ships, cargo ships, 47,000 cargo ships. 4.5 billion tons of coal needed to fuel uh, the war effort. Crude oil, 1 billion gallons of crude oil. Steel, 733 million tons of steel. You talk about the military personnel in the, in the army. There were over 55 million men and women serving in the armed forces or in uh, services around that supporting it. There were 4.3 million in the Air Force and 1.5 million sailors around the world. And it took almost six years to defeat the Axis powers. You have to, to think that during that time, and I was not alive during that time. I know we have folks here who were. We probably even have a handful of folks who have served, uh, maybe even served during that time. But you have to think that there were many moments of discouragement, that there are many moments when, when people like Churchill and, and Roosevelt, you know, probably sat in their offices and wondered whether or not they would ever get the upper hand or whether evil would actually win out. You have to imagine there were a lot of moments when, when generals and, and majors and colonels and captains would look at their troops and say, boy, oh boy, I hope this works, because it doesn't look very good right now. I, I mentioned this in the first service, and uh, one of the gentlemen here uh, came up to me and said, I, my brother-in-law survived the Bataan Death March. Now, if you know anything about that, that's astounding, because very few people actually survived the Bataan Death March in the South Pacific in the, in the Philippines. But there had to be moments of great discouragement where it just looked like it wasn't going to go well. I think there are probably people here in the Christian faith this morning who have some mo uh, emotions of discouragement, some emotions perhaps even flirting with despair that maybe you've forgotten or you've lost sight of the reason for the hope that is within you, because the context of the reason of our hope is not a world where everything's going just fine. We don't live in a world where everything comes up roses, so to speak. We live in a world that's very broken. We live in a world that is filled with discouragement and is filled with hurt. Perhaps this morning you're here doubting whether you even really have a reason for hope. 
And so it's important that as we, uh, this Sunday and next, as we bring this sermon series to a conclusion, that we have a reminder about the object of our hope. So as we think about the, those foundational verses in 1 Peter, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you that doesn't just happen void of the context of life. So how do we hold on to the hope that is within us and how do we uh, articulate it to ourselves and, and sit under God's word, but also be ready to share that with others? That's what we want to try to tackle this morning. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 1 and we're going to read verses one, uh, excuse me, 21 through 24, uh, and then we're going to go over to Revelation chapter 21, and this is from the nonfiction section of Scripture. That's just a classic. Hear the Word of God. Paul writes, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For for him to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then in Revelation chapter 21, the first seven verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the apostle John writes. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for a moment. Fathers, we come to these two passages of Scripture in the context of a, a world that is broken. Lord, for many of us, we've experienced that, that brokenness this past week in one form or another, maybe disappointment uh, in some uh, relationships in our school, uh, perhaps disappointment, frustration in, in a job, perhaps uh, a family that is broken apart by uh, antagonism and angst with one another, uh, Lord, perhaps just disappointment with life in general. So Lord, we, we come to you as people who uh, don't live in, in a perfect a spot guarded from, from consequences of sin. We live in a very real and broken world, and we want to be a people of hope. Father, we want to take to heart that which Scripture teaches us, and so we come longing for your word, not my words. They are no different than any other person's. Lord, we need the eternal word of hope buried deep in our souls uh, if we are to face the day uh, and to do so trusting you. 
and loving you and being filled with joy, not because it's easy, but because we belong to you. Father, we don't belong to you because we're better or smarter uh, or good. We belong to you if we do only by your grace and the mercy that you give us in Jesus. So, Father, guard us from pride. Keep us humble of heart because that is where we should be because we cannot earn our salvation or deserve it. Father, help us remember this morning the hope that is ours in Christ. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon in a sentence this morning, it's actually going to be the same for two weeks. It's a quote out of a book I read a few years ago by an author named Calvin Miller. He wrote a trilogy called The Singer, The Song, and The Finale. And it is, uh, it's uh, kind of his version, kind of uh, like um, C.S. Lewis did the, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, what Miller did was he kind of took the gospel message and put it uh, to this story. So the singer is about Jesus, the song is about the church, and the finale is about the triumphant kingdom of Christ. But he writes this in the, in the, uh, in the finale. He says, death is the confirmation of the believer's creed. For the skeptic, it is discovery immense and late. So we're going to look at that for the next two weeks uh, as we wrap up this series. And we're going to look at the first half of that sentence this week. Death is the confirmation of the believer's creed. If we have a living hope, how do we approach it in the world in which we live? We're going to tackle this topic in two ways. The first is this, in Philippians, we're going to talk about a personal hope, about my hope in Christ, so that I can, I can write my name in there, you can write your name in there. As a disciple of Jesus, this is my hope. That's the language that Paul uses. It's singular and it's personal. Then we're going to go to Revelation and we're going to look at the collective hope that all of the people of God share. The community of God is hopeful as well. So we're going to look at it from both of those perspectives. Let's start with a personal hope. In Philippians chapter one, Paul says, for to me to live in this life, was assumed, for me to live here on earth, that is Christ. What is Paul saying? What Paul is acknowledging here is that life right now in the here and now for the disciple of Jesus is a life that's built on faith. What Paul is saying is, I'm trusting that Jesus is the Christ, that he is who he claims to be, that he's done what he said he would do, which is grant me forgiveness for my sins through his death and his resurrection, and I now have a hope in him. So for me to live is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a faith statement, is it not? You know, you may be living for something, uh, the, the amount of money that you can earn, and you're hopeful and you're diligent about working hard to earn that much money in order that you can base your life on what you have, on those possessions. But that's a hope. That's something that you're trying to get to. It's a statement of faith. What Paul is saying is, I am, I'm, I'm betting the farm on the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. He's living a life of faith. But he's saying more than that. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When's the last time you bumped into somebody on the street and they said, I just cannot wait to die. And you didn't think that was a bit odd, or you got concerned over them. Are, are you, wait a minute, are you, are you talking about taking your life? Are you talking about doing harm to yourself? When's the last time you, you heard someone talk about death in that type of language and it didn't seem off in some way? 
You could read this and say, what is Paul saying? To die is gain. That, that sounds morbid in its origin. What Paul is saying is there's a life beyond this world for disciples of Jesus that is far, far better. Where we're living now, we, we're in Christ. We are secure in him. For me to live is Christ, but there's something more. Okay, Paul, well, what is that something more? You, you, you got my interest. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang with you for a little while longer. What does it mean that there's something far better that awaits us? And he tells us in verse 23 of chapter 1, For I am hard-pressed between the two to stay or to go. Why? My desire is to, to depart and what? And be with Christ. For that is far better. He's talking about a face-to-face relationship. He's talking about life in person with the Lord Jesus. He's talking about a friendship that will last forever. Now, I'm not going to put these verses on the screen, but if you go back to 1 Corinthians, which is also in the nonfiction section in the New Testament, and you read in chapter 13, a lot of you may go, wait, 1 Corinthians 13. That, that I, I know that. It's the love passage, right? Oh, yeah, I remember that. The very end of the love passage, Paul takes a a bit of a turn and he speaks about his hope. And he says, you know, right now, as I look at the kingdom of God, it's kind of like looking through a dirty window. I can't quite see everything very clearly. I know there's something glorious on the other side, but my sight is limited by living in this world. But he says, then when I'm with Christ, I'll be able to see clearly. But then he says something else. He says, now I know in part. I can't know everything there is to know. God hasn't revealed everything. But then I will know even as I am fully known, right? Think about that for a minute. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus knows everything about me right now. He knows every hair on my head, or if I don't have any hair, he knows why, right? He knows everything about my past. He knows everything about my present. He knows everything about my future. There's nothing in all of creation that's hidden from God's sight. All the bad stuff you did last week and I did last week, Jesus knows about it to the nth degree, right? All the things that scare you, all the things that, that, that wake me up at night and, and cause me to worry, Jesus knows all of that. But I only know a little bit about Jesus. I only know kind of the tip of the iceberg about Jesus. But someday, Paul says, I will know as much about Jesus as he knows about me. Think about that. Jesus is God. He knows everything. And he's going to share that part of his personality with us. That's why it's better. You're talking about faith now, but in someday it's going to be a reality. Jesus is going to look you in the eye. The day that you see him, if you're his disciple, he's going to say, welcome home. Great job, by the way. Right? Well done, good and faithful servant. There's something far, far better that it's waits, and it's to be face-to-face with our Lord and our Savior and our friend. Why is that hope important for you and me today? Well, I think Paul makes that clear in this passage as well. He says in verse 23, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, I think you can read that a couple of ways. Fruitful labor, that sounds really, really nice, doesn't it? You know, I mean, a lot of good things are going to happen. And I think Paul certainly means that. I think it is a positive statement. But the word work is in there, right? It does say labor. And this life is full of labor for the disciple. This life is a life of effort. This life is a life of struggle. This life is a life of bearing witness to Jesus, even though you haven't yet seen him. 
We're talking about inviting people to come on Saturday night. There are friends I have that I can invite who will probably give it some thought. There are some other friends who are going to say, you're still the biggest fool I know, right? It's tough to live in this world through in that hope. It's work. It's a challenge. Sometimes it feels like we're carrying a weight that might bury us. It's important for us to understand the end of the story because the life of discipleship, Jesus says what? Take up your cross and follow me. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel like an incredible burden at times. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of uh, Patrick McManus's work. Patrick McManus is, is one of the best short storytellers that America produced in the 20th century. And uh, a very winsome uh, writer. And, uh, and this thought of, of labor and work and struggle, I want to read for you a small section out of a short story he wrote. And the, and the story... Uh, is about sequences. In fact, that's the name of the story, Sequence. And he's talking about uh, a conversation he had one day with his stepfather, whose name is Hank. And I'm going to read just again a short portion of a story called Sequence. One day Hank said to me, Pat, let's take off today and go fishing up Ruby's Creek. Sounds good to me, I said. Let's go. Okay, but first we have to fix the hole in the pasture fence. It won't take but 20 minutes. My shoulder sagged. Hank, I said, either we go fishing or we fix the fence. Which is it? Both, he said. First we fix the fence, then we go fishing. Now go get the wire stretcher and we'll get started. I saw that it was hopeless. No matter how often I tried to explain sequences to Hank, he could never grasp their significance. The wire stretcher's broken, I said. Oh, that's right. We'll just run over to the Haverstads and borrow theirs. Yeah, but the, Ma- the Mallory's borrowed our post hole digger. Yeah, we can swing by the Mallory's and pick up our post hole digger. Then on the way back, borrow the Haverstead's wire stretcher. Then we'll fix the fence and go fishing. Easy as pie. We're out of fence staples too. Is that right? I guess after we borrow the Haverstead's wire stretcher and pick up the post hole digger from the Mallory's, we can zip into town and buy some staples at Jergens Hardware, come back, fix the fence, and go fishing. But Hank, you promised Sam Jurgens you would haul him a load in a load of hay bales from the Nelsons the next time you come to town. Oh, yeah, I got to take Sam those bales of hay or he'll be mad as hops. Well, we'll have to take the truck. But first, we better pick up the spare tire that's over at Leroy's shop getting fixed. So here's what we'll do. We'll borrow the postal digger from the Haverstads. We'll pick up the stretcher from the Mallory's. We'll stop by the Leroy's shop and get the spare tire, go over to the Nelson's and a load of hay, haul the hay to Jergens, buy the staples, come home, fix the fence, and go fishing. How does that sound? You're getting mixed up, Hank. We borrow the wire stretcher from the Haversteads and pick up the postal digger from the Mallory's. Good leaping, gosh almighty. This is getting complicated. Now, where did we start? I better write it down in the proper sequence, I said. We started out to go fishing, but first you wanted to fix that stupid hole in the fence. It's nice to chuckle about, but sometimes I will be honest, that's what discipleship feels like to me. It almost feels so overwhelming. I'm not quite sure where to start and where to stop and where I need to go next. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, and it's not that you don't love Jesus. It's not that, you, that you're not saved by his grace and his mercy. It's not a question of, of abandoning your faith. It's just a question of saying, sometimes I forget why all this is going on in the first place. It's good to be reminded we have a hope. And that hope is intensely personal, first and foremost. Before it's about the church, Jesus' salvation 
is about me being home with him. That's my creed. That's what I believe. And death will confirm that according to the Apostle Paul. And I believe that to be a good reminder for all of us this morning that we have a personal hope in Christ. But it does run much deeper and much wider than just a personal hope. In Revelation 21, we see the collective hope about which John is now going to teach. So it is personal, but it's also for us. It's me and us. Look at it that way. And there are several aspects of this that we need to bring out. The first is this, that God is providing a new home for all of Jesus' disciples. The first couple of verses. I saw the new heaven and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. So we've got the big picture, the new heaven, the new earth. So now it's going to come down a little more specific. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What's happening here is that God is creating the new heavens and the new earth. He's creating a new Jerusalem. In other words, a glorious community for all of his children to abide forever. Now, new here in the Greek is an interesting word because it doesn't just mean I went to the car dealership and I got a car that was made in the last year. It's new. You know, you get in and you take that. Oh, it's new car smell, right? It doesn't just mean new. There's actually a nuance to this particular word that stands for the notion of a change in quality. So you're expecting something that was pretty good and you got something that was amazing. The quality was more than you could imagine. And that's what John is saying here. God is showing him something, the quality of which he has never seen the likes of and he's astounded and shocked at how good it's going to be. I was out in Denver a few years ago and I gotten in late at night and I had to go to the rental car place and I went to the rental car place and I was the last person there. It was like 1130 at night and I'm sure the person at the counter was not all that thrilled to have waited around for me. But I finally got in there and I, and I was a big spender. I was going to get an intermediate sized car, right, for like $19.99 a day, as cheap as I possibly can. And I go up to the counter and I take out my credit card and my ID and I give it to him and the guy's like intermediate. I'm like, yeah. He goes, how long are you going to be out here? So I'm here for about a week. And he looks at me, but then he looks past me. Like, and I'm like, is there somebody behind me? And then he looks back at me and he gets this big smile on his face. He goes, I got a Hummer out there in the parking lot. You want a, you want a Hummer? <laughs> and I went, yeah. <laughs> but I can't afford a Hummer. So thanks for the offer. But no, I can't, I can't upgrade. I mean, the, whatever the intermediate was, I, like I could sell the intermediate and have the money to pay for the rental for the, for the Hummer, right? I mean, it's really expensive. And the guy goes, he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I'll give it to you for the same price. And I'm like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's been sitting out there for two weeks. Nobody rents it. And I, I want somebody to use it. So you want to take it? I'm like, sign me up. And now what I didn't tell you was I was on a study week. I was supposed to be preparing for sermons. <laughs> and you might not have known I was in Denver, but you surely noticed after I came back that the quality of sermon might have dropped off a little bit. But I went places I never thought I could get to. And it was more astounding than just about anything I had ever experienced in my life. I expected to go to the mountains and have a good study week and, and have a time where I, could, where I could enjoy the mountains up there. I didn't realize that part of my enjoyment was going to be up there looking down, right, and watching sunsets that I, that I couldn't even fathom, right, more than I could have possibly asked for, right? John says we're going to have a new home 
And I can't even begin to describe it to you. It's that amazing. The second thing he says is that not only are disciples of Jesus going to have a new home, but we're going to have a new proximity to God. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is God speaking. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, this, this word dwelling is a word that's used in the Old Testament in terms of a promise. In Leviticus chapter 26, the, the scripture says this, God's speaking, and he says, I will, at some future date, make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's God promising something that's coming. And then later on in Ezekiel, towards the end of the Old Testament, Ezekiel speaks a lot about the, uh, the, the end times and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. Ezekiel says, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people Israel forever. Again, that's a promise that it's coming. And here God reveals to John that it has fully arrived, that the promise of proximity, God making his home with his people has arrived. No longer are we going to be people of faith. No longer are we going to be people who look to the future with a longing and with a hope. We're going to be people that that is now our present reality, that we have proximity to God that we could never imagine. I had a friend told me a story last year. He was over at Three Kings uh, uh, Pub in De Perrin. He was eating dinner. His wife was out of town. And so he just stopped by to get a hamburger. And he was sitting at the bar, minding his own business. He's eating his burger. And somebody comes in and sits down in close proximity on the bar stool right next to him and makes his dwelling place right next to my buddy's dwelling place. And then he asks the bartender uh, for a, a Heineken and then says, hey, by the way, while you're here, could you please get the hockey game on that TV? And my friend said as he was taking a bite of his sandwich, a thought went through his mind. I know that voice. That's the great one. Wayne Gretzky had come in, and Wayne Gretzky has a home here in St. Louis now, and had sat down and made his dwelling place next to my friend. Now, clearly, there are not enough hockey fans in this room because you all should be, like, uh, shocked and astounded and in awe that the great one made his dwelling place with my buddy, Right? And I, was, I, I will never forgive my buddy for not calling me and saying, get the Three Kings Pub right now because I'm sitting next to the great one, right? Because I would have sat down and said, hey, great one, what's going on? How you doing today? Yeah, you come here a lot, right? No, I'd have been like freaking out, right? Because who, who, for those of you that are, that are totally in the dark, I'm sorry, Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player that's ever lived, okay? So if you don't follow, if, you, if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're a, a true baseball fan, I probably should have. Um, it would have been like Sam Usual coming in and sitting down and saying, hey, you want to hang out for a couple hours? Okay, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, and they just hung out and they talked. And they talked about life. And they talked about wives and kids and work. And, and, and great one asked my buddy some questions. And my buddy asked great one some questions. They just had a normal dwelling place conversation. Now, that's pretty cool, but that ain't God. God, it's overwhelming. Nobody can draw near to God 
without being consumed. And yet God says, I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to make it home. I'm going to make it for you. I'm going to dwell with you. There'll be a new proximity. There'll also be a new reality. Look at verse four. This proves that I'll never preach a sermon in heaven. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You're like, oh, thank goodness. This is the best news. This is a great sermon to hear that. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. He's reinforcing my lack of sermons. Nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The new reality for the disciple is that this world that is right now filled with tears and death and mourning and pain is going to be a thing of the past. It won't touch us anymore. Cindy's mom was in town recently, and she's 78 years old, and she sat down. And she said, yeah, I brought some paperwork with me. I kind of want you to see my state and my will and all that, you know, because I'm getting older, right? And no, nobody wanted to have that conversation, right? But you got to have that conversation. Why? Because we live in a broken world. you got to talk about wills. you got to talk about estates. you got to talk about divorce. you got to talk about pain. you got to talk about violence. you got to talk about suffering. you got to talk about disappointment. Why? Because they're everyday occurrences but not in our new home. The new reality is that pain and suffering is erased. And just to make sure we understand it, just to make sure we know that this collective hope is true when it's ours, look at verse five. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The king who has all authority is speaking. And if you're wondering whether or not this is going to happen, who's, who's going to put all this together? The king says, let me make it clear. I'm now speaking on my authority. I try this every once in a while at my house, right? right? This is how it's going to be because I have spoken, right? And Cindy kind of giggles and goes, that's so sweet when you do that, right? <laughs> And then it doesn't really happen, right? Okay, well, because that's not how husbands are supposed to love their wives and lead their family, right? Okay, but when the king speaks, it's law. And the king says, I'm making a new home. I'm making a new proximity. I'm making a new reality. And just to reinforce his love and his grace and his mercy that go with his authority, he, he wraps up by saying this in verse six and seven. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's grace, it's free, it's yours. I want to give it to you. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's not a a, a son-daughter thing, it's a privileged one. So he's speaking collectively about the church. We will be like a special child to him. The collective hope of the kingdom of God is so crucial this morning, brothers and sisters. It's personal and it's collective. And it's important because some of us get tempted to rest our hope in this life. We tend to get kind of tunnel vision and we tend to forget about things of eternity and we tend to make things that are temporal much more important than they ought to be. And we allow them to hold on to our lives and clutch us in a way and make priorities out of them in a way that cause heaven to be cloudy and distant and confusing. We need to remember that our hope is not for this life. Paul puts it this way when he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's not another life, if there's not another world, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if there isn't a resurrection, if, if what we're talking about this morning, this personal hope and this collective hope is not true, we as Christians are complete idiots. We are, we are insane. We are out of our minds. My hope is not for this world, brothers and sisters, and your hope ought not be either. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things of this world that God gives us good gifts. When I got up on that mountain, thanks to the Hummer, I got to enjoy an amazing sunset. A lot of you know our daughter lives in Hawaii. I've gotten to walk on a beach in Hawaii and look at a sunset. Some of the most incredible things I've ever seen. I've seen, uh, held my grandchildren, right? That's a pretty amazing thing. I got a granddaughter running around out in the lobby right now. At least I think she is, right? I hope to see her afterwards. And every once in a while, she lets me hold her. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing. But that's not my hope. My hope is in my God who says, I'm going to make all things new. And you need to trust me in that. And don't get so focused on this world that you lose track of where, where your hope should lie. But the second part of the application is this. What is for today, if our hope is, is in heaven, what is for today is endurance. It is perseverance. It is a witness. It is a hope in this world, but not for this world. And that's why we, we come back to Peter's words, the foundation for our sermon series, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, both personal and collective. Yet do it with gentleness, respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us enough to give us a new and living hope through your death as a sacrifice for our sins and through your resurrection as the Father's endorsement of your payment for our sins being enough. Father, we are, we are tempted to get focused in this world, quite frankly, because it, it's broken and it's, and it's difficult and it's challenging and, and it feels like it, at times it just needs our, our undivided attention and we lose, we lose our perspective. So, Father, I pray that you would just renew our perspective this morning, not to, to make us ineffective in this life, but actually to make us more effective in living in the truth of the hope that is personal, that one day if, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, he will look me in the eye and he will say, welcome home. And that I can also be assured of that for those around me, for my brothers and sisters, that we collectively, by your grace and by your mercy, will be home and our hope will then be a reality. We praise you for this. We pray that you would embed it deep in our hearts and our minds this day. In Jesus' name, amen.